Hello and welcome to the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast, where culture, communication, and context meet at work. In this podcast, you will discover what cultural influences have formed the careers of noteworthy leaders in a variety of professions by exploring the groups that shaped who they are today. Learn about the collective context and experiences that affect their worldview, leadership style, workplace, communication, and behavior. My name is Marie Gervais, and today I'm honored to host Ashif Maji, who is a serial entrepreneur and an investor who has built and sold many enterprises and is heavily engaged in the community. He presently serves as a venture partner at Rising Tide, which is a San Francisco Bay Area venture capital firm. He was awarded the 2002 Ernst & Young Prairies Entrepreneur of the Year Award and in 2005 was named as one of Canada's top 40 under 40. In 2007, named BBC's Entrepreneur of the Year in Alberta and has received Canada's 50 Best Managed Companies Award three years in a row. And if that weren't enough, Ashif has also received Nate's Alumni of Distinction Award, was recognized as the top 50 graduates in 50 years, has, was named as an honorary colonel for the 20th Field Artillery Regiment in the Canadian Army, in addition to receiving the Queen's Golden and Diamond Jubilee Medals and an Alberta Centennial Medal. All of these things because Ashif is really good at what he does and because he's so generous uh, and the way that he gives to the community is amazing. So he has served on and continues to serve on quite a number of boards just to demonstrate some of his community giving attitude and experience, including the Edmonton Police Foundation, the Sarah McLaughlin School of Music, the Young Presidents Organization of Alberta, the Stollery Children's Hospital, the Edmonton Oilers Community Foundation, and many, many others uh, ranging from sports and community and health to the Edmonton Opera Society. So all of these things, Ashif is engaged really deeply in the community where he lives and is always giving back. He was named the Henry Crown Fellow in the class of 2015 and is only one of three Canadians ever to be selected for this group since 1996. And that is a fellowship which is part of the globally renowned Aspen Institute. And he has a personal life. He's happily married and has two boys and many interests, as you can probably tell. So Ashif, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Now, that was um, a long list of accomplishments, but I think that you also have something personal to add to your introduction that you were just telling me about a little bit earlier. Uh, would you mind describing how you grew up and, and came to Canada and the things that you started practicing early in life as another more personal introduction to who you are? Yeah, you know, I, so I was born in Kenya. I was born actually in a, in a place called Mombasa. And, you know, come from very humble beginnings. Family wasn't, uh, wasn't well-to-do. I mean, you know, we, we had food, we had shelter, uh, etc. But we, you know, didn't have any of the niceties. And so growing up in Kenya, what I really am proud of and happy for is that my parents taught me from a very young age that giving was very important and something that was necessary. So knowing, you know, that we didn't have that much money, I remember going to the inner city on a Friday night and basically, you know, my parents would hand out, you know, Kenyan shillings to the homeless people there. And, you know, I, I, I was participating in that. My brother would participate in that. And, you know, it taught us from a very young age that uh, even though we didn't have much, giving was important and seeing the, the smiles on the people that we were giving money to and their gratitude uh, really gave that feeling of something where you knew that was going to continue on. And so moving to Canada, uh, you know, my family and I, we do that. Uh, we've taught our, our two boys to do the same thing. So we're hoping that that uh, message carries on. 
And also, as you mentioned earlier, this is one of the tenets of Islam. And it is something that people don't often hear about because they're focused on things that don't have anything to do with Islam that are being, you know, touted as Islamic. But the teachings of Muhammad are very much anchored in giving, being charitable, being a part of the community, and all the things that you're talking about that you learned as a child comes from that. Exactly. And, and, and you're right. That is part of the Islamic faith is, you know, again, giving, uh, looking after your neighbors, you know, no matter what state they're in. Uh, and also, you know, caring for everyone. Right. And, and so it, it's a very nurturing faith, if you will, uh, and one about sharing. And so, you know, that was, again, very, very apparent uh, to us growing up. And that's affected your values also as an entrepreneur, right? Exactly. You know, it's again about uh, making sure you're fair, treating others just the way you'd want to be treated. So, you know, in business, there are, there are always going to be opportunities where you can make you know, more money, but it would mean that you would maybe be unethical or you would, uh, uh, you know, violate your values. And so for me, you know, th- those are things where you just don't do that. Um, you'll, you'll respect the values, you respect the ethics. And so you will do business in a very fair way. And, and that means sometimes you'll lose some of those big deals. Uh, but that's okay because you will feel good about yourself and uh, it is the right thing to do. And it makes you a trustworthy business person, one that others are willing to work with because you have a reputation of being making values-based decisions. Exactly. It's, it's got to be consistent, right? So you got to do that consistently uh, and that's how you build trust. So you already started to share an incident from your childhood where you were talking about handing out shillings in Kenya at the mosque on Friday night or around that area in the inner city. And I'm wondering if you would be able to share one or two other incidents from your childhood that you feel really made you into the person that you are today. Yeah. So, you know, so right outside now, this is going back a a few years after Mombasa. We moved to Nairobi, which is the capital city in Kenya. Um, and at this point, my dad, you know, had, had kind of worked his way up uh, from being a, a, you know, a floor cleaner or a janitor uh, at Honda to now being the managing director for Honda for Africa. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a story in itself, but, but demonstrating that through hard work, you can accomplish whatever you want. So now we're, we're in Nairobi, we're, we're living in a nice area, but right outside our gated community was a shanty village. And the school that I went to uh, had, had, you know, folks that could not afford it. Um, and so were there on a subsidy, if you will, or a scholarship. Uh, and, and folks like myself that could afford it. So it allowed us, and this was called the Aga Khan Primary School in, in Nairobi. And it allowed us to, to understand each other, uh, you know, whether you're wealthy or not wealthy, uh, different backgrounds, diversity, etc. Now, my best friend lived in that shanty village right across from us. And one day, and typically we eat lunch at school, uh, one day he offered to me, he said, you know, why don't you come with me to my house and have lunch with me? So I went with him and we went to this shanty village. And, you know, as I walked in, it was the first time I had actually been in a, in a, in a place like that. So it's a very distressed hut, you know, with uh, um, aluminum roofing, etc. Uh, you know, uh, mud walls and, and so forth. Um, and I go in there and his mom was surprised uh, because she was expecting him and not me. Uh, now she had one more mouth to feed. So what did she do? Now they were going to split a half loaf of bread uh, and some milk. And so what she did is she took a little bit of bread from each other child's 
to, to give me an equal share. And she added a little bit more water to the milk to give me that equal share. And, you know, what it, what it told me, it said, you know, I, this was like, you know, poverty in its, in its true sense. And rather than the mom saying, you know, I'm not welcome or, or, you know, we don't have enough food for you. She took from everyone else in her family to give to me. And that was very powerful uh, because it again demonstrated that uh, no matter what state you're in, uh, giving is very important. It really shows the value of generosity under all conditions and kind of grit too, don't you think? Exactly. I mean, I mean, this this mom, you know, again made to do, and 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 the other kids, you know, they they weren't complaining. Uh, they were welcoming, right? They were happy that uh, my friend had brought me in. That's a great story. And so you think that that's affected you in what way? Maybe explain a little bit how you feel that's affected you throughout the years. You know, again, it's it's looking at everyone that I, you know, come in contact with or whether it's through work or it's through the not-for-profits or or through anything else that I'm engaged in, understanding that, you know, they come from a different background. Uh, Sometimes the things they say or do might be relating to that. You know, they might have had a hard day there uh, or or coming into into some, you know, adversity. So trying to be more respectful and more understanding, I think is very important. Let's talk a little bit about um, groups you were born into. So you were born into uh, right Indian heritage background. Um, you were born into Kenya and the, uh, and the area in, in there. You're born into Islam, um, and you know. So how how have those groups you were born into, or other ones that I haven't mentioned that that are that you are aware of that I'm not aware of? How have those affected? Uh, your sense of culture and your sense of self. You know, so so coming from that, uh, so so in in Kenya, what had happened is the the Indian migrants had been brought in uh, by the British uh, to build the rail, right? And so when they migrated there, uh, you know, after building the rail, they got into owning shops, you know, little convenience stores, etc. So uh, a very strong sense of entrepreneurship, and so looking at my parents. Um, so now both my parents, so my parents both worked. My mom was a teacher. Uh, my dad worked at Honda. But my grandparents had a business. They had a shop, right? And so I, I used to work there and understand what it took to sell, make money, uh, et cetera. So, uh, but also seeing my dad and my mom progress through their careers, again, through hard work, showed me that sense of entrepreneurship in terms of you know, working hard and, and, and going for a goal and, and getting it. Uh, so, you know, I'm fortunate to be surrounded by that community. And I think that's how I started my entrepreneurship journey. Uh, at school, again, I saw opportunities on how to make money and I did that. Uh, you know, we used to go to England uh, twice a year. And in Kenya, there were things that were, you know, shortage computers where you couldn't get them. Uh, I used to love playing the keyboard. Uh, and so my, you know, my, my parents always told me, you can have anything you want. You just got to pay for it. And so I would buy a keyboard, buy, buy two keyboards from England, bring them back and sell one for twice what I paid the other one for. And so I get mine for free and I do the same thing with computers and so forth. So I always got the things that I wanted. I just had to earn, uh, my money for that. So I'm thinking you really got a lot of good 
introduction to a lot of really good things from just your grandparents, your mother and your father. So your father showed you how you can work up from a low position to the top position uh, strategically and not a hard work, but also being strategic about it. And you, your mother was a teacher. I'm sure that was very helpful uh, in learning how to uh, instruct and, uh, you know, and, and how to present things and how to put information together. And then your grandparents being business owners that gave you that thinking about being a business owner. And then you're in a community of people that had to work really uh, in very innovative ways to make money. Right. So like all of that was like a perfect surrounding for you to become an entrepreneur, which you started taking advantage of pretty early. It seems to me, how old were you when you first started trying to sell, you know, keyboards and computers and things like that? I, I think, you know, it was around, uh, probably around nine or 10 years old, I'd guess, uh, in, in that timeline anyways. Yeah. That's the age when I think entrepreneurship kicks in. <laughs> yeah, no, to totally. You know, and it's interesting. My, my older son uh, started his business here when he was seven and he was in comic books. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're excited to see that uh, because it was off his own undoing and, you know, he created a contract for the kids to sign, their parents to sign rather, uh, they, they were allowing the kids to buy a comic book and so forth. So he was, he was funny that he thought about all that. And, and you're right, it's around that age where I think it kind of kicks in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they start thinking about making money pretty early. But when they reach eight or nine, that's when it really hits up. I think I can do this. Right. Yeah. So from the groups that you chose to belong to, what aspects of those cultures would you say you've adopted into your leadership style? So I'll talk about a couple of things. One is the Henry Crown Fellowship. Um, again, it's, it's a value-based leadership uh, approach. And so, again, really emphasizes, uh, you know, the aspect of, of, of values. And so it, it's, it's, it's named after a gentleman by the name of Henry Crown, um, you know, if you look at his, his background, uh, et cetera, you would see that he was somebody that did business, uh, values being first, you know, it was always a handshake agreement, never went back on his word, uh, always true to his word. Uh, and so that's, you know, a little bit about what the program's around is, is helping business leaders uh, and entrepreneurs understand, uh, that there are opportunities, um, you know, the question is just because you can, should you, is a very important question. So, you know, you've seen in the past where, you know, a pharmaceutical manufacturer, just because they can triple the price of an EpiPen, uh, should they, right? So, so that's the kind of things this program teaches you. I think that has had a pretty uh, dramatic impact on me. And, and again, making me think uh, about that, that question, just because you can, should you, you know, with every decision I make. The other organization is YPO or Young Presidents Organization. Again, you know, you meet great leaders uh, that that have you know undertaken the entrepreneurship journey, uh, and then you know again you get to learn about you know how they handle things like ethics and values, uh, and, and and instill that within their corporate culture. So lots of learning from there as well. Are there also interests that you've developed over the years that involve being in a group? So just to give, give you an example, I've always been interested in the arts and in music. And so, you know, I've developed uh, associations and, and values based on those things, you know, like the, the discipline of learning, uh, learning an art. 
and uh, and then being involved in the artistic community. So uh, how about for you? Are there some interests that have also influenced your development of your sense of self? Um, you know, I wouldn't say anything like that. I mean, I, I you know, if, if you're looking at interests and in groups, you know, I used to race motorcycles. Uh, and so it was a team sport, right? Because you, you always have uh, teammates. And so, um, you know, there are times when, uh, you take one for the team, so to speak. So, uh, you know, you, you have to do certain things so that your, your teammate can, can go to the, the, the podium, right? Which would mean that you would sacrifice yourself, uh, and, and not be on the podium. So things like that, I think the motorcycle, uh, racing on that taught me, uh, which also, you know, if you translate that into business, uh, it's always, you know, leading from behind, so to speak, right? So, allowing others to, to kind of get ahead um, and, 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 you know, get the, get the limelight. Uh, and you as, as kind of the leader, you, you stand back and watch that and, and, you know, see that through. You know, I'm kind of surprised that you said that for motorcycle racing, because I, I would have thought it was more that you, you learned to, that you enjoyed the competition and the speed. Yeah, the, the, there are that, but there's also, um, so, so because you are, when you, when you race for a, a team, like a Honda is an example, you're racing against Kawasaki and Suzuki and, and some of the other brands. And so when you look at it, you have to look at your, your, your competitors, right? So if somebody on the Kawasaki bike, you know, is better than you, but you're leading, uh, there's three more, you know, uh, laps to go. Uh, your teammate uh, is just, you know, behind. Now, you can find a way to obstruct uh, the Kawasaki guy so that your teammate can get ahead, right? Because uh, he see. is faster, yeah. So you, you have to look at all that uh, and assess the situation. So Because at the end of the day, we're racing for the team, not for ourselves. Yeah, I love that. Really, it's sort of, the collectivist approach is very strong in what you're saying. We are part of a community. We, our values define our interactions with the community. And the way that we work with that community affects uh, our global success, right? Yeah. You know, you can see that in hockey, too. Sometimes you'll see a player that you know that they could score that goal, but they see their, their, their teammate coming, and, and the teammate might not have had you know, a goal, and, and they know that this one goal will lift their spirit. So rather than shooting, they, they pass. Right. And so you see that a lot in sports, too. Yeah. A whole bunch of A players that are just out there for themselves just destroy the team and end up not actually scoring what they think they're going to be able to do. So when they start working together and seeing how can we be stronger together, that's when they really develop their capacities. Exactly. You know, in Edmonton, we have a player like that. It's, it's Connor McDavid is, is very much like that. So you, when you watch him, you'll, you'll, you'll see that he knows he can, he can score, but he'll see somebody coming by and, and he'll pass it you know, hoping that they score that goal and get that victory. Wayne Gretzky was the same way as well. Yeah, I was just going to say Wayne Gretzky is, was a similar, and that's yeah. what, and I think that's why they ended up calling him the great one, even though it's, they think it's because of all of the, the, the scores that he made. I think it's because he really showed greatness of spirit, personally. Exactly. So um, we're going to go a little bit to uh, temperament and personality. Temperament's what you're born with, that you really don't change. You know, some people are just born patient, and others are born uh, assertive, you know, so it's, it's, there's that. And personality would be the sum of things that you've learned uh, and what you've made of the experiences that you, that you had. So how would you say your temperament and your personality affect your leadership style? 
So temperament for me would be, you know, being type A, uh, I think it's very much uh, of uh, one with very little patience. Uh, so that's something which, which is a good thing in certain aspects and a bad thing. Uh, in business, sometimes it's good in the sense that you want to get decisions made. You want to, you know, go in and get it. Uh, the bad thing is that you sometimes don't have enough time to think, think things through. And so you make mistakes, right? Uh, so that's something that, uh, you know, I've been, as you said, I'm born with that. Uh, so I continually have to help myself get better at it. Uh, and it's, you know, I know it's going to be a lifelong journey because it's not going to change overnight. So that would be temperament. What about personality? Um, personality, you know, I, I, I think, um, yeah, that, that's a tough one for me. I mean, I, you know, I would say, uh, if people were to describe me, they would describe me as kind and generous, uh, I don't see myself that way as much. Uh, so it, it, it's something that I struggle with because I, I hear that from people. But, you know, I also see, uh, I, I see the generosity. The, the kindness is one where, again, with the, with the lack of patience, sometimes, um, you know, I see myself as, well, I could have been, you know, kinder and, and, and being more patient. But, you know, the, the whole nature of being impatient uh, means sometimes you're not as kind. <laughs> But then personality would have been that you developed kindness because you realized you needed it. Right. And you probably have developed patience as a way, as a, because you recognized that you were impatient. So you worked at developing patience, I would think. <laughs> I, I think it goes, uh, it, it goes in abs and flows. So it just depends. There, there are times, like, you know, in meetings where you're sitting there and you, and you, you know, as an entrepreneur, you, you, you always think you know the answer, right? And so... You know, when, when the question's going back and forth and you look and you go, you know, I know the answer. So there's something in, your, in the back of your brain saying, jump in and tell them the answer, right? And, and, and so then the, the, and that's the impatience. And then, you know, the other side of your brain kind of tells you, okay, just hang in there. Let them, let them come to the answer themselves. Right, which is always better. Yes. Uh, so we're getting close to the end of the interview, but I wanted to say, ask you about a time you became aware that something that felt normal for you was in fact a cultural thing rather than just a universal. And um, I'm, I'm thinking, thinking about, for example, in my life, I had, uh, I had a friend from the States who was black uh, as a young adult. And we were friends for about 10 years before she moved away quite, quite far away. And uh, we used to share stories from our childhood. And at one point I shared a story about a children's story that I really liked as a child. And she was horrified. And she said to me, that is such a racist story. And I said, uh, it is. And, you know, having worked my whole life, not, not to be racist, to do everything I could to, to counterbalance racism, I was absolutely mortified that I would have liked a racist story. And, um, when she explained it to me, I realized how I'd grown up in a context that would have allowed that to be normal, that story to be normal and become normalized. And that, that, that was, I think that's probably the first time when I felt really struck by the fact that what I thought was normal was in fact just my cultural underpinning. So I don't know if that gives you an idea, but do you have, have you had an experience that was like that for you? Not, nothing, nothing as dramatic as that. Um, you know, little, little example. So again, you know, coming from that culture of, of giving and helping, um, you know, I found where uh, I'll step into situations and, and help when everybody else is standing, standing by. So, the, the, you know, an example is this is a few years back. 
um, a homeless person was crossing the street and, you know, he fell. And so, you know, I, I kind of reached out there to help him, right, where everybody else was just standing around. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, if you, if you, if you equate that, it, it's where, you know, I guess they didn't see the value um, of, of them helping him. They, they figured he's probably drunk. Uh, you know, he's fallen down. He'll get up and, and get around. And, and I just thought that, you know, this is somebody that has fallen down. I, I don't know if they can get up. So I just, you know, lent, lent him a hand and, and helped him up. So it was very minor. But it was just interesting for me to see where others were just standing around. Yeah, that would be, I think, a good example of all those years of practicing integrity kicking in when you needed it. Right? Exactly. I'm thinking about something else where you're just aware suddenly that what you had was a limitation rather than... um, I'm I'm thinking of um, another one of the other people that's on the podcast recently. And he said that, you know, he's, he's an American... And he was working in another country and doing software training. And when he, uh, he realized that some of the things that he was saying that he thought were, everybody said those things, were in, were in fact specific to being American. And that in the country that he was in, they were really insulting. And uh, so that, and he suddenly woke up to that and he said, you know, why didn't you guys tell me sooner? So I didn't make him, you know, such a fool of myself uh, saying this thing. And they thought, well, at first we thought you meant it. Right. So that it was, that was like a disconnect. So have you had, I mean, you've been, you went from your, the town that you were in um, Mombasa and then you went to Nairobi, went from Nairobi to Canada. You must've had some shifts where you felt like, Hmm, this is, I mean, when I was little, I was going from one school to the next. Every time I was in a new school, I became very aware of the fact that this was not my culture. <laughs> so, um, so what, have you had an experience like that where you just suddenly realized that what you knew was perhaps a limitation? You know, I, I, I honestly can't think of anything specific. Uh, sorry, Marie. Uh, I'm scratching my head, but I, I just can't think of anything like that. I come to you later as soon as we finish recording the podcast. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Okay, so I'm wondering, let's say you were an employee and an employer was going to hire you and you had this wonderful opportunity where you could tell the employer what would be the best way to work with you. What advice would you give that employer? You know, I'd say to the employer is, is tell, me, tell me the end goal. Tell me what you want to accomplish. And then, you know, give me the tools and give, give me the, the, the things that I'll need to get there but don't tell me how to get there. Let me do that on my own uh, because I, I am creative. I'll, I'll be, uh, I'll find a way to get there. Um, so to tell me the end goal and, and kind of let me run with it. Right. So give you some kind of an idea of the vision behind it and the why. Exactly. And let you use your creativity and your experience to get to the result. Exactly. That's yeah. great advice. That's great advice. So is there anything else that you'd like to add? Perhaps the questions made you think of something else? No, nothing. I, I think you covered the, especially in, you know, in, the, in the topic of, of culture, um, I think you've covered it. Well, I really do appreciate you spending the time on the interview and uh, bearing your soul with experiences from your childhood and, uh, and you know, letting, letting people know what kinds of things they could learn from your experience, which is really valuable because we, we pick up a lot of what we know from other people's examples around us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
So Ashif, I'm wondering if you would, uh, if you have some information you'd like to share with the audience, um, your contact information I will put into the show notes, but is there any event coming up or something you would, something you'd like to promote that you think might be useful for the audience to know? You know, I'll think about it. I can, I can shoot it to you over email. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah. And uh, any boards that you uh, uh, support or that you're part of that you think might be interesting for people to join that, that, that you, you have found in your experience were, were good experiences, that could also be helpful for the audience to know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, um, you know, the, the, my, my advice there would be, you know, find, find causes that you're passionate about and, and see what organizations do that and then start volunteering and then, you know, learn more about that board and see if that is a fit for you. Uh, you know, I'm one not to prescribe the causes I, I'm passionate about because I think everybody's passionate about their own. Uh, but I'm, I'm one to, to ask people to, to look at how they can help the community. So find things that you're passionate about and, and give back to your community. That's great advice. And that just gave me an idea for one more question. And it's, the question is just that, so I also volunteer and I almost everybody that I'm interviewing ends up being somebody who volunteers as well uh, in different ways. And I'm wondering, you don't go into volunteering for something because you try to get something out of it. Otherwise, that's totally the wrong reason. But things do happen as a result, right? So has, what has happened as a result of some of your volunteering? What opportunities came up or connections that you think were uh, related either directly or indirectly to your volunteer work? Um, you know, I, I think the, some of the boards I've served on, um, you know, you'll, you'll meet other business people that are part of those boards. And so, you know, opportunities come in my last company, a uh, uh, couple of the not-for-profit boards that I was on, there were other business leaders that were part of it. And, you know, through, through just general chit-chat, you know, they ask you, what do you do? And you tell them, you know, about your company, et cetera. They, they became investors in my company, right? And so it wasn't like I was seeking uh, them as investors, but just because they got to know you and, and kind of know you as a person, uh, you know, they didn't know anything about the business and they just figured, you know, he's a good person. So very likely the business is going to be good too. And so they invested. Uh, so that was just a side benefit, I'd say. Yeah, it's all about connecting with people, right? When they see that you're sincere and that you're there to be of service, that opens up opportunities you would never have thought possible. Exactly. Yeah. Well, again, I want to thank you, Ashif, for your for your time. And, and I'm really happy that you were able to contribute to the podcast. And we will see what great opportunities open up as a result. Sounds good. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time. Ashif Maji is a serial social entrepreneur and investor who has built and sold several businesses and is heavily engaged in the community. Many would be surprised to find out that his fame and entrepreneurial success are based on a continuous practice of generosity, contributing to the community, and building team capacity by leading from behind. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Ashif Maji. Find out more and the links to connect to Ashif's business and the causes he supports at shiftworkplace.com slash podcasts. Remember to like the podcast and give it a rating so it shows up in search terms when people look for podcasts on culture or leadership. Thanks for listening.